covered up to verse 40 last week as we look to those that when Jesus had fed the multitude, the 5,000 men plus women and children, they eventually were wanting to make him king. Jesus sends his disciples across the water as they're struggling against the, the, the wind and the waves that are there. Jesus eventually sees them upon a mountain as he's praying to the Father, travels across the water on foot, gets in the boat, they get back to where they're supposed to be. And those people who had eaten of the physical bread pursued him, went all the way around the lake. Some went across the lake on boats, others went around the lake on foot, and they pursued him. They put in a lot of energy, a lot of effort for more physical bread, which is what he gave them. And he began to give them a discussion about true bread. Not, not, not bread that was provided every day, like manna, but a true bread, eternal bread. Something that gave life, not, not just momentarily, not just a day satisfaction and then you'd be hungry again, but something that could be life that satisfies you eternally. And as Jesus was trying to share with them, he made a statement, and it's key to what we're looking at. There in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. They said in verse 34, give us this bread always. We always want this bread. He said, it's me. <laughs> I'm, I'm the bread. I'm going to be that which satisfies you. And so as we look here in verse 41, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. He had made a statement, I am this bread, and the Jews complained. Now, we've talked about this before, that when John, the apostle, writes and he makes this statement, the Jews, he's not referring to all the Jews, he's referring to the religious leaders. He's referring to the elders. And where he's having this discussion that they're complaining about him in verse 41 Verse 59 gives you the scene. Look at verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, he'd already been speaking to those that have traveled across the sea or went around the sea to him, and those were the ones that he was having a dialogue to up to verse 40. But now in verse 41, it does shift the scene is no longer on the way to Capernaum, on the way to the synagogue. Now he's in the synagogue there at Capernaum. And there in that synagogue, verse 41, the Jews then complained about him. They were complaining because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. It's important for us to recognize that they do grasp a truth. When they're complaining about him saying, I'm the bread which came down from heaven, and they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? You understand, they know what he's referring to. 
when they're saying that he said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven, they realize, verse 42, that he's making this statement, I have come down from heaven. And over and over again, we're going to see this truth. Now understand that as he's there before them now, what he's making to them is a radical statement that I just didn't show up in birth. Do you understand? I left heaven, came down, showed up in birth. That's what I've done. I am incarnate. I am God. I left heaven to come and to be here with you. There was not one prophet in the Old Testament, not even John the Baptist that could say, I left heaven to come down to be with you. Only Jesus could make that statement. Only Jesus has ever made that statement. I left heaven to come down. And they're saying, you know, I've come from heaven is this really what you're saying? I want to give you just a couple of verses to just jot down. It declares this in verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He made a statement, this bread of life is that which comes down from heaven. We also see in verse 41 where they said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Verse 42, of course, he says, I have come down from heaven. Verse 50 and verse 51, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Do you understand that over and over again, he's making this statement that, where I came from. He's not alone in this. Remember when we were looking at the words of John the Baptist there in John chapter 3 verse 31. I want to just read it to you so that you can again realize what it is that John was saying about Christ. Remember when they were questioning John, are you the Christ? He says this in verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. See, John knew that this wasn't just a cousin. John knew that this wasn't just a relation. John knew this wasn't just a man. John knew because the Spirit of God ascended on him, and God had told him, the one whom you see the Spirit ascending. He knew that Jesus was eternal. He knew that, yeah, he's in the flesh, but he was before me and was always before me that he was eternal and that he came down from heaven. Do you understand that this isn't a new concept? And I think it's so important for us to recognize that when Jesus is talking about his life, you have to understand the humility that comes in that life. Remember, Jesus, who being the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation. He leaves heaven, comes in the form of a man. Then as a man, he takes on the life of a bondservant. And as a bondservant, he takes on death so that we can have life. 
Understand that how great a step that he made so that you and I could have life. He leaves heaven. He left eternity to come to die so that you and I could now be ushered into eternity. That's incredible to see the work that he's done. And now they're complaining in verse 41 because he said, I'm the bread which comes down from heaven. He said, this is not Jesus who's the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. Now, now keep in mind, I want you to understand that when they make this statement, they make it emphatically. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? The bottom line is, is guess what? <laughs> they really don't know his father. They, they know his you know, his stepfather, but they don't know his father. And it's an important thing. I want to give you a couple verses just to lock into as if you're a note taker, jot this down. The first is found in Luke chapter, 20, Luke chapter 10. In Luke 10, I want to give you just two verses to focus on, verse 21 and verse 22. Luke 10, 21, Jesus makes this statement. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. And then in verse 22, he says this, and all things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. You understand that you can't fully even know the Father, understand about the Father, unless the Son chooses to reveal and this is important. This is a huge concept that we need to begin to grasp. When John comes and he makes that statement of who Jesus really is, there's a passage that is, is close to this. In John chapter 7, beginning in verse 27, it makes this statement, however, we know where this man is from. Speaking of Christ, the leader said, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Do you understand? We know that Jesus here is, is from Nazareth. We know where he's from. When, when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And in a sense, what it does is it just really shows their ignorance. Because they're saying that no one can know where the Christ is from. Remember when the wise man came to Jerusalem? And they said, we've seen him who's king of the Jews. We saw a star. We need to know where he's at. And they searched the scriptures and they found there in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, but in you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
Though you were little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. There's going to be a ruler that Christ is going to come, and he's going to come from what? From heaven. He's coming from old, from everlasting. He's always been, he'll always be, but he's coming now into Bethlehem. And so when they're trying to figure out where is this guy, we know who you are. Is this not Jesus, verse 42, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How then, how is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? Do you understand? They're, they're missing it completely because they don't understand the scripture. They don't understand that which God had given to them. And the reason they don't under, understand it is they don't want to know. They don't want to receive this Christ. They have a Christ of their own making. What they're really wanting, similar to the 5,000, is, is one who's going to come and usher. He's going to be full of pomp and circumstances. He's going to take on Rome, and he's going to conquer them. Now understand, Jesus will come. He is going to come. He is going to come back, and he is going to come with pomp. He is going to come back on a white horse. He is going to come back, and the sword of his mouth is going to consume all who are in opposition to him. But that's not now. That's not who this is. Remember now, Jesus is both what? He's the lion and the lamb. His first coming, definitely a lamb. Second coming, as a lion. The first is a sacrifice, the second as the king of kings and lord of lords. But as they're coming, they are so emphatic that they understand who this Jesus is. He's the son of Joseph. He's the son of Mary. And he said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I've come down from heaven? I don't know how well they know them, because if you would have talked to them, Mary would have said, no, it's not Joseph. <laughs> Holy Spirit, and yes, we went down to Bethlehem. This is where he was born. From there, we went to Egypt, and then we came back here. They don't really know. They know of them, but they don't know them. They haven't communicated with them. If they did, they would have that same understanding that Matthew had, that Luke had, that they would be able to understand his coming to earth. But yet they don't. And we see because of their question that Jesus now in verse 43 makes this declaration. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. Don't be complaining. Don't be bitter. Don't be going through this. Don't be simply murmuring among yourselves, complaining as you are about what it is that I have declared. He says now in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up in the last day. 
It's interesting that there in verse 40, he made that statement again. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son of Man and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus simply says, believe in me, you're going to have life, and I'm going to raise you up. You will have eternal life. In verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 47, he says, Most assuredly, I say that he who believes in me has everlasting life. You understand the whole thing that, that he's speaking is this, that it's important for you to come to an understanding of who I am, but you can't do it on your own. I love the heart because what we recognize is this. It has to be not just your understanding. The Father has to give you illumination. And I want to give you just a couple of passages in, in order to fully grasp what that is. There, there's one passage I want to give you found in Matthew chapter 16. You know it. Just jot it down. But in verses 15 through 17... They have been debating over Jesus Christ. And there in Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 15, he said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Well, Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? That's what he says. Who do you say that I am? Oh, you're the Christ. And remember what Jesus answered in verse 17 there of Matthew 16? Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. When Peter says, You're the Christ, you didn't get this on your own, Peter. Do you understand? This was a gift, this was a blessing, this was a help, if you will. And it's important for you to recognize that truth that, that we can't fully grasp who Jesus is. Now, on the spiritual level, they know who Jesus is. Remember that passage there in Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 32? Jesus was there in Matthew 8. He goes over to the Gadarenes, and there he meets the men who are demon-possessed. And in verse 32, or in verse um, 28, when he'd come to the other side, to the country of the Gurganes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus you son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Do you understand? They knew who he was. The demons know. The demons believe and they tremble. The demons understood. And so he said, you know, they begged him, permit us to go into swine. He says, all right, go. But do you understand how, and I think it's so important that when we look at verse 44, this verse is not meant to be a verse of rejection. Let's read it again. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's not a verse of rejection. It's a verse of direction. This is where your hope lies. It lies in me. And it's one of those things that I think it's so important that that we cannot do this of our own. We cannot have this understanding of how do we get into a right relationship with our creator? How do you and I get into a right relationship with the holy God? Do you think we can figure that out ourselves? You understand that the Holy Spirit had to inspire men to write down the scriptures so that we would have some kind of clue of how to get right with God. Who would have thought that what we need to do is have a sacrifice? And then who would have understood that the blood of that sacrifice could cover for a moment, but eventually there'd have to be another sacrifice and another sacrifice? Who would have known that blood... The blood, the life source of another gets us right with God, and only the blood. An amazing thing is this, that God would never look at the worshiper who was coming. He would never look at the sinner to say, oh my goodness, how horrible you are. Remember what they would do? They would look at the lamb. They would look at the sacrifice. Who would have thought that God wouldn't look at me? No one in their logical mind would think, I failed. God's going to look at something else. He's going to look at the perfection of a sacrifice. It would have been, I failed. He's going to look at me, and i got to try to somehow better myself. That's a logical mind. But it isn't about bettering yourself. Scripture, God teaches us through speaking to the prophets, through giving us the scriptures, that you and I cannot get right with God on our own. There has to be blood that's shed, and the blood that's shed is what he looks at. He looks at the sacrifice, and that blood of the bulls and goats, it was temporary, but scriptures would teach what? Of a perfect sacrifice. It would be a copy of a shadow of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And so understand what Jesus here is trying to say He said, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You and I need help in coming to a right relationship with God. The the standard man is not going to instantly gravitate to, oh, I know how to get right with God. Who in their right mind would think we know how to get right with God? Now, granted, there are many people who do not go to scriptures that think that they are right with God. Me and God were like this. I've done more good than bad in my life, and I'm doing even more good now. Of course, that's going to help me, right? No, it doesn't. When you sin at one point of the law, you've broken the entirety of the law, and there's no coming back from that. You can't weld the chain back to say, oh, let's fix this, which is broken. It's broken, and once you're broken, you are now separated forever by One, your sin nature, and two, the evidence of that sin nature by the sin that we do. And so it's important to recognize that we need help. We so need help. We need to be drawn in. There's two passages I want you to be aware of. The first is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. Let me simply read it to you. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying... 
This is God speaking through Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 3. The Lord has appeared of old, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I've drawn you. Do you understand? God said, I've always loved you. You were, you were wandering off dead in your sins, and I loved you from eternity. I've loved you. I've spoken to this. I've appeared of old. I was anchored in eternity. My love for you was anchored in eternity before you were ever born. I've set my love upon you, an everlasting love. And you're wandering. So what am I going to do? I'm going to draw you. I'm going to be the initiator. You get to respond to it, but understand that if I don't initiate, there's nothing in you or nothing in me that is good, that would seek after God, that would seek after a right relationship with him, that would understand how that relationship could actually come about, and, and one, to be acceptable by God. There's a lot of people that are doing works. That's not acceptable by God. Isaiah said, all of our righteousnesses, everything we do is as filthy rags. There's nothing good in us. There are none good, no, not one. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. But God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I've drawn you. There's this beautiful passage in the Song of Solomon. I want to read you just two verses or the one verse and then the first part of the, the, the second verse. But in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, I want to read you verse 3 in the first part of verse 4. It says, because the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. I'm aware of you, but I have no idea how to get to you, so I need you to draw me. And this is important. So what happens is this. In verse 41, this isn't a verse of rejection. It's a verse of direction. Think about it this way. Let's just say that you fell down and had an accident. And in this accident, you broke your hip and you broke your arms. So what are you going to do? Are you going to, you know, be a Marine and just climb with your teeth to go find help? Are you going to just, just, just bite into the dirt and move yourself? No, you broke your hip and you broke your arms. What are you going to do? You're going to cry out. When there is nothing that you can do, you're going to yell for help. Help me, help me, help me. That's it. You know that, that old commercial where they wanted to, to sell the pushing the buttons, I've fallen and I can't get up. And so you do what? You, you yell for help. You send a signal for help. This is what God says. You are hopeless. You are helpless. You have no strength. You have no ability, but you can do this. I'm going to make myself available to you. Will you cry out to me? And I think it's so beautiful to recognize that my only help is in God. My only hope is in God and his plan. There's only one way to come into a right relationship with God. And that's the way that he revealed in scripture. You and I can't come up with that. Who would have thought 
In, in all of eternity, the, the best way to get into a right relationship with God is to have God himself become a man and die for my sins. That blood being shed is a perfect, perfect sacrifice. Nothing else would do. But who in our right mind would think that that's how we get right with God? God comes down. God becomes a man. God serves. God ministers. God goes to the cross. God dies. God raises. And we who believe in that sacrifice, that blood, that death, that atoning death, have everlasting life. And you can't come to that on your own. And this is why it's so important. How does a man know the right way to eternal life? We just don't. But I'll tell you what, the Spirit of God begins to move in our heart and it bears witness to the Word of God. And then God gives us the faith to believe in this. Do you understand? It's all Him. And why? Why does He do this? For whatever reason, and I don't know why, God has loved us with an everlasting love. From eternity, he's already set his love upon you and upon me. And so he draws us. He moves us. He illuminates a path. It's not a path of our own making. It's not a path that we go through. It's a path that he illuminates. It's a path that his word says there's, there's one path. There's one door. There's one sacrifice. It's Jesus and only Jesus. There's not multiple ways to God. There's one way, and we understand that way. Why? Because the Spirit of God has illuminated that understanding that it's only through the Son. And this is what he's saying in verse 44 of our text of John 6. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You understand? God has to start the work. God begins to pull you in. Now, 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 when God does draw us, it does not alleviate what? Us responding to that leading. You have to accept Jesus Christ. You have to accept his death on the cross. We have to accept that as atonement for our sin. If we do not come to that place of accepting it, now, of course, the Father illuminates it, he shows us, he draws us to this path, but we have to accept it. And this is where it's so important. He says, listen, don't murmur among yourselves. Don't argue among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. I will give him life. It's such a beautiful passage when you grasp the fullness of it. Now he says this. In verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. He's quoting a passage from Isaiah 54, verse 13. And in it, I, let me simply read it to you so that you can grasp how Isaiah speaks of it. But in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13, he says this, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. You understand they're going to be taught by God. And when they're taught by God, they're going to have peace. And as we're taught by God, as we're led to the work of Jesus Christ, guess what? We have peace. Not as the world gives, but his peace. 
his peace that is, is within and his peace that, that is conquering everything that's external. And so he says, it's written in the prophets, they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. You understand that you have to be clued in to coming to Jesus Christ. We have to understand one who he is and what he's done, but you have to come and put your faith in that work and that work alone. And so he makes that statement, such a beautiful thing. They have to be taught by God and everyone who's heard and learned from the Father. Once the Father has illuminated your mind and drawn your heart that you are one wanting to be a part of this love and have this eternal relationship with him that is right and grounded in the way that he prescribes, not the way that man does. When you do that, then you come and you can receive. But he says this in verse 45, and then in verse 46, it is written in the prophets, they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So as he talks about the Father, he lets us know, you've never seen him. You've never seen the Father. And the only thing that you will ever know of the Father is when you look at my life. When you look at my life, the way that I live, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so often we have this tendency of thinking that the Father is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is the God of the New Testament. The Father is angry and the Son is so gracious. Do you understand he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. It's not that the Old Testament is angry. The Old Testament, it was, it was showing who we were and our desperate need for a Savior. Jesus Christ comes as the Savior, but that has always been spoken of, even through the Old Testament. And I think it's important that he makes this statement. He says, if you've heard and learned from the Father... Do you know what that means? Love. God has set an everlasting love on us. And we think, he's so angry. No, he's not. He's loving. But you have to understand that a holy God has to deal with sin. Sin has to be dealt with. And that is what we see throughout the Old Testament. Sin has to be dealt with. And when God shows how sin is dealt with, what he does is this. He makes a statement first and foremost. And then after that statement is made and it's anchored as a foundation in Scripture, then what happens is this, is that God doesn't always judge the sin in the same way. Think about this. Think about all the firsts that have happened in Scripture. Adam and Eve. Adam takes of the fruit. What happens? He's out of the garden. Just instantly, he's gone. There's no more access to the Father. The, the, the way is guarded. Cherubim are there. Flaming swords are there. You cannot have access. And that was just one bite. One bite of the forbidden fruit. One. And he's gone. 
And then what happens is this. When the children of Israel come into the promised land, as they're coming, what happens? Well, they get into the land, and then one man, Achan, takes of some of the items that were there in Jericho. He took some of the cursed things. God said, what? It's all mine. It's all mine. The first fruits are mine and mine alone. Achan took them. And what happened to Achan? Remember what happened to Achan? Death happened to Achan. He died. The first priests that were there established, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, what happens? Well, they come and they bring what is known as a profane fire before the Lord, something that God did not specifically speak of. And they said, oh, this sounds good. What did God do? Fire came out and killed them. The first of the priests, he said, you, you missed the mark. You have to be holy. It has to be what I've ordained. You can't make this up. I have to declare it. You understand all these first that are there in Scripture? In the very first church, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie. Just lied. And they didn't lie a big lie. They just lied about how much money they actually received from a property. And because they lied, guess what? The Holy Spirit killed them. They died. Do you know what would happen today if every Christian who ever lied, God killed with the Holy Spirit? You would have somebody else behind the pulpit. <laughs> I would have a different congregation. I don't think there'd be any Christians alive. Do you understand that... After that first initial example, what does God do? He allows all other Christians to say, I've set my standard, and now I'm showing you grace. All other priests, I set my standard, now I'm showing you grace. See, he sets this precedent of how he deals with sin. The wages of sin is death. This is how I deal with it. This is where the wages are. And so when God does this, it's so amazing that what he begins to see is this. When he said, everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. We realize our sin. We realize our separation. We realize there's one access. We come to Jesus if we've learned from the Father, if we get any knowledge from the Father, the knowledge draws us to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And then he says this, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. I know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are one in mind, in spirit, and authority. We are one in nature. Everything that we learned about there in, back in, in John chapter 5, these all one. And then he says this in verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, that he who believes in me has everlasting life. It's important for you to understand this concept that it is about believing in him. And over and over again, this is the key. Verse 40, I want to read that to you one more time. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. 
Last words he said, but it's about believing in him. And now when it comes to this point, understand the concept does not change. The foundation is already set. So Jesus speaks for the second time. Because remember what they said in verse 41. They complained about him because he said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. So in verse 48, he says this, I am the bread of life. Only I am life. Only I can satisfy. Do you understand what that means by saying, I am the bread of life? He's saying that life only can be found in me. In me, the work that I do, the person, my ministry, only in me is their life. Now he says in verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. They ate of the physical and they are dead in the physical. That's all he's saying. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. An absolutely incredible thing that here, he points out that there is one form of bread, a physical, that you will have physical death. But there's another form of bread, a spiritual, that you can partake of that and have spiritual everlasting life. And so when we see this, again, verse 50, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I give for the light of the world. I want you to understand that what he's saying now, he's talking about his flesh. Now, what I'm going to do is this. For just a moment, we're camped out here in verse 51, but I don't want you to lose the context. So I'm going to read the rest of this portion that we're going to be studying tonight up to verse 59. Let's read this. Verse 51 again. I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said, most assuredly, I say, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. He's trying to get them to understand, one, his flesh and his blood, and that being life. Now, where do we see his flesh and blood? Most of us would say what? Communion. 
I see his flesh. I see his blood. I see the bread. I see the cup. I see his flesh and blood in communion. Was communion ever given to non-believers? No, in fact, if you're not a believer, don't take communion. So is he talking to these non-believers about communion? No, he's talking about something completely different. This isn't about communion. What this is is this. It's about his finished work on the cross. Where do we see his flesh and his blood? Well, we see his flesh upon the cross as he was there beaten, as he was there whipped, as the, the crowns were there upon his, his head, as he had the nails in his hand and his feet, and we see the blood. And he's pointing out his atonement, his work. He's pointing out his death. And so let's take a look at this one more time because if you focus on this as his death, let's look and see what is not, not communion now, just his death, his flesh, his blood, his atoning work on the cross because the way to life is through death and the only death that is acceptable is what? A perfect life. And so we understand the only death that was appropriate is what? Jesus' death. Jesus' death for our life. So let's look at verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. I'm the source of this life. If you are partaking of me, or if you are accepting of me, if you're internalizing me, if anyone eats of this bread, if you partake of my work, he will live forever. And the bread, the work that I give is what? It's my flesh. I will go upon that cross. This is what it is. And he says, and I, he said, the bread that I give is my flesh in the end of verse 51, which I shall give for the life of the world. I'm going to give my life so that you can have life. Atonement. The Jews now begin to quarrel. They begin to argue among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, keep in mind that we're seeing here, he's speaking of his death, not of his actual flesh. But they're saying, how can he give us of this flesh? He wasn't talking about the literal flesh. He was talking about the, the reaction of what his flesh, his body upon the cross. Verse 53, Jesus said, Moses, surely I say, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, is he speaking of a transubstantiation? Is he speaking of that, that he literally becomes, his body becomes, you know, the bread becomes literally his body. The cup becomes literally his blood. There's a passage I want you to be aware of. Turn there if you want, but mark it down for you note takers. Mark chapter 14, verse 22 through 25. In Mark 14, he makes this statement beginning in verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed it and broke it and gave it to them saying, take, eat, this is my body. He took bread. He took bread and says, this is my body. 
Was it really his body? Did, did he miraculously make this his body? He said, take it, this is my body. And then he took the cup and when he given thanks. And he said to them, and they, and they all drank from it, saying, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Surely I say I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. He says, this is my blood, which is shed. Was his blood shed in the upper room? The answer is no. Was his body broken in the upper room? The answer is no. Do you understand that they're symbols? He's speaking of a spiritual truth. He's speaking of his atoning work on the cross. And he says, if you don't partake, if you don't hold on to and, and accept my body, my blood as your life, getting right with God, you don't have it. It's only through my work on the cross. And I think it's important for us to recognize this truth. He says in verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, a couple of things I want to just share with you so that you can grasp the truth of what he's saying here. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 63, he makes this statement. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. He didn't say the words that I speak to you are literal, it's not about partaking of actual flesh. It's not about partaking of, of actual. If, if you're thinking, oh my goodness, is he actually bread? Is he actually the cup? One passage that I want to share with you found in initially in John chapter 3. A couple of verses I want to read to you, verse 5 and 7. Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus, declares this, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. There's flesh and there's spirit. There in John chapter 4, speaking to the woman at the well, he makes this statement in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In verse 14 of John 4, he says, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst, but the water that I give in him will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You understand she's thinking of having physical water. He's saying, no, I'm going to give you spiritual water. If you come to the point of believing on me, any of you who thirst, come to me. And he who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow torrents, rivers of living water. You understand how Jesus is trying to get them past the concept of You've got to truly partake of me. You can't just think of me. Do you understand? 
I want you to know to focus on what bread is for just a moment. If there is bread, can I eat it for you? No, I can eat it for me, but I can't eat it for you. Do you understand that if you want to have the benefit of that bread, you have to partake of it yourself. No one can do it for you. This is why he's saying, I'm the bread. You've got to partake of me yourself. And think about this. If there's bread that's sitting there on a table and you look at it, you go, wow, that's some fine looking bread. That's some amazing bread. As a matter of fact, I can tell you every ingredient that is in that bread. That's how well I know the bread. Is that going to help you any? Absolutely not. You can look at it. You can applaud it. You can, you can sing its praises on how amazing it looks. You can know every single ingredient that's in it. But unless you partake of it, unless you internalize it, unless it becomes one with you, that bread does nothing. And this is why Jesus is making the statement in verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. You've got to consume me. It has to be about me. And so we see here this incredible thing that Jesus is trying to teach. And he says in verse 55, my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. It's about partaking of those things. There's a passage, I want you to be aware of it. And I love the fact that the Holy Spirit gave this to Peter but in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, Peter makes this statement as he's illuminated by the Spirit, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Do you know what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature? That you can receive it and accept it and internalize it as we have. You can be a partaker of that divine nature. And what Jesus is saying in verse 55, my flesh is food indeed. You have to partake of my death on the cross. My blood is drink indeed. You have to partake of my death on the cross. You have to become one with me. And it's so important to, to recognize what it is that, that God is trying to speak. It's about we need to be one with him. As he is one with the Father and the Father is one with him. That whole understanding. There's this passage in John chapter 14 verse 10 and 11. He says this to Philip. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. You understand that he's saying that there's such a partaking that, that I am partaking the Father, he's partaking of me, where we're one with another. And it's so important for us to grasp this truth when here he's making this beautiful statement that he says in verse 54, 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. You partake of me, I'll raise you up at the last day. You will have eternal life. My flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is an important Port, part of what Jesus here is saying in this dialogue. He's been saying partake of his work, partake of his work. We understand that, his body and his blood. We need to accept his death, believe in his death, because when it talks about eating the flesh, drinking the blood, it does not deviate from verse 40 and verse 47. Let me read those to you again. This is the will of him who sent me, that whoever sees the Son and believes in him see him lifted up on the cross, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 47, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. It's about believing. Believing in the finished work, believing that his, his flesh was torn, his blood was shed so that I could have life. He died. The way to life is through his death. And then in verse 57, he says, as the living father sent me, and as I live because of the father, he who feeds on me will live because of me. It's so amazing. He says, it's about feeding. It's about partaking. It's about receiving fully all that I am. In John chapter 4, verse 32, let me read to you one passage. Jesus makes this statement where when the disciples came to him, he said in John chapter 4, verse 32, where disciples that urge him, Rabbi, eat. He said, I have food to eat, which you do not know of. Do you understand? I'm partaking of the Father. I'm partaking of a spiritual food. And so in verse 57, he says, as the living Father sent me and I live, I'm partaking of his nature. I'm, I'm receiving from him. I have food to eat, which you know not of. As I am receiving from him, I live because of the Father. He who feeds on me will live because of me. You understand, in the same way that he had food to eat that they didn't know, we have food. And, and, and our nourishment, our life comes in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. And so when he now concludes here, as he fed on the Father, we feed on him. Verse 58 says, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, but he who eats this bread will live forever. It's interesting, and you don't know this because of the English, but I'm going to help you out with what it declares in the Greek. As it says, this is the bread, verse 58, which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, but he who eats this bread. The word ate is in, in the Greek from the root phago. And, and what that means is simply to, to eat. It means to have, have swallowed. That's basically it. You, you ate it. But when he says this, not as your fathers ate, physically ate, he who eats this bread will live forever. The, the word in the Greek is from the root trogo. And, and what that means is it means to chew on. It means it's a continual. And, and, and I love the, the heart means to 
feed upon it. It's a continuation. And this is why he had made that statement in verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. You understand that you do not leave this life source. You do not leave the fact that my life is only in his death. I don't add to it, and I can't subtract to it. My life is in his death. It was, his body was broken, his blood was shed, so that I could have life. And then when we partake of that bread, when we partake of that work, he makes a statement, we live forever. And it's because God had first set his love upon us. And I think it's important that he's trying to get it through these religious leaders. And it isn't about physical bread being his physical body, the physical cup being his physical blood. It is about his atoning work. Now, make no mistake, when we do communion, it's about his atoning work. It's the same thing. But this passage here is not about communion, this passage here, it is is about his death on the cross and us partaking of it, receiving it, internalizing it, accepting that this and only this death of Jesus Christ on the cross is our life that we're right before God. And so in verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. He wants them to understand He so desperately wants him to gravitate, to listen. You're you're, you're upset because I said I'm the bread. Do you know what bread is? It's not the physical, like the manna. It's not like all these people coming to receive physical bread. I'm here to give them the spiritual. Just like the, the woman at the well, I was here not to give her physical water, but spiritual When you come to me and the Spirit fills you, torrents of living water, you're not dripping. It's spiritual, refreshing. It's all about this. And I think it's important to recognize that verse 63, again, the words that he speaks are what? Spirit. They're spirit and they are life. Let us come to this understanding where there's only one source of life. And that life is in the death of Christ. Let us receive it. Let us walk it. Let us proclaim it. Amen. Father, we are so grateful that this passage is included here in John's gospel. It is so necessary to understand. And yet, scholars today, Christians today, struggle with this passage And yet, it's one of simplicity. It's one of necessity, absolutely, Lord, but it's one of simplicity. And they could not fully grasp when when they were coming all the way for a physical bread once again. And they were declaring, look at, do a work. You know, our Moses gave our fathers manna. He said, it isn't about the physical. The physical, you can eat and you still die. Your fathers are dead physically. But in me, only in me, only in my death is there truly life. Help us to gravitate to that, walk it, accept it, worship you because of it. Help us be those who 
Father, as you've illuminated our heart and opened our minds to this truth, that we believe it. And so we come to this point of worshiping you because we couldn't do this on our own. Thank you for this word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your heart that you loved us, loved us, loved us, and would do this work, atone for our sin, that we could have life with you. Oh, we worship you because of these things. We pray in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, amen.